you are, but I feel like this isn't working out when you're driving. I know you may think that it's possible to focus both on me and the road, but I just don't feel the same way. I think we should spend time away from each other when you're driving. It's for the best. Visit StopTextStopRex.org, a message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Welcome to Growing Up in America here on KPFT 90.1. With me, this is Bob Sanborn from Children Wrestle along with uh, Claire. How are you doing, Claire? I'm doing well. How are you? Claire Dutre is in the house. So uh, uh, it's been a busy week though, right? It has. The Eras Tour, everything else going on. But it has. Yesterday was a pretty busy day at the Capitol, was it not? Oh, yeah, super busy. Uh, I was there for the big early education day, big rally on the Capitol steps. It was a big deal. So we're going to talk a lot about that today, a lot about education. Uh, and as always, we'll, uh, especially with you here, Claire, a very entertaining show. This oh, yeah. is a discussion <laughs> on our children, public policy, and how do we as a city and a community do when it comes to taking care of every single one of our children. We are a production of Children at Risk, the voice of children in Texas. Uh, We're a nonprofit organization dedicated to research, public policy, law, and collaborative action on behalf of the youth of Texas. And we'll fill this same 60 minutes as we do every week with lively discussion on the children of Texas with experts on the quality of life of our children. And today, uh, date of the day. Here's your teaser, Claire. Okay. 1,691. What do you think? That Sounds means? like a lot of kids. It's just that, well, not a lot compared to Texas, but it's a lot. A lot of people in a room if they were standing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, uh, I'm. I'm. Do you have any guesses? No, I've been staring at it, trying to even think of a guess. Maybe it is the cost of childcare for a month. Yeah, that's yeah, really maybe. Yeah, that's that would be low. Uh, <laughs> Four weeks. I'm thinking like the number of people <laughs> that came children. to our rally yesterday at the Capitol, but that would be too accurate. That's account. too low. That's <laughs> <laughs> multiply that by five, and then we'll oh. get there. Anyway, a lot of good guests today, and we're going to start off with our thumbs up, thumbs down. I don't know if we have. Uh, do we have a little theme music? That- we do. Oh, yeah. yeah. All right. I remember a couple of years ago, oh, maybe 20 years ago, I was sitting at a, <laughs> One or two. At, at a lunch and uh, this was a lunch for like people in working in universities. Mm-hmm. And I sat next to a guy who was from Vermont, um, Chickering, Arthur Chickering was his name. It's sort of a famous guy. And he talked about, he did not like the idea that there were honors colleges, mm. you know, that there, you know, like at the University of Mississippi, there's Correct. an honors college. At the University of Houston, there's an honors college. And they may have some different names for them, but they're basically honors colleges and he didn't like that that idea because he felt like there was a preference for Mm. those kids like pretty much all classes should be honors college in classes yeah uh in in high school and so uh this was uh or in college this was sort of an interesting thing and so today our thumbs up thumbs down are gifted gifted and talented programs what do we think about gifted and talented what what is your take on gifted and talented programs because there's a little bit of controversy obviously if you're a parent Mm -hmm. especially if you're the parent of a young child you really believe your child is gifted and talented right right the firstborn absolutely (laughs) gifted and talented. most gifted most you have no idea uh, about what other kids are like but you're pretty sure that your child is Is gifted and so everyone wants their children to be in gifted and talented programs of course, yeah. until the kids become teenagers, and then you realize, well, no, maybe, maybe there's more, <laughs> so, more to it. So, uh, what is your take on this whole idea of gifted and talented, Claire? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up honors college programs because it's, it's similar thinking of is it necessarily more rigorous or a different model, and is that model applicable to regular classrooms? So, for honors college, it's a smaller class, it's a more active learning, flip learning classroom. Yeah. And that's beneficial, like you said, to all students. The issue is because there's larger class sizes, university level, but high school, elementary, et cetera, 
It's not necessarily. You have similar class sizes. So can we just implement the model that we're using in Gifted and Talented into all of our classrooms? Um, but yeah, I don't know. It can be ostracizing. My school did not have Gifted and Talented. Yeah. We did have honors, which I guess would be the equivalent. I know some schools, it's a completely different building. Um, but I didn't see too much of a flip. It just seemed like we moved a little bit faster in honors. Um, but there were a lot of kids that were written off and not just because they were quiet and silent killers in the back, but they were smart and excellent, but teacher never referred them because they always were falling under the radar. There's also been a little bit of research, and I remember the day when this might have been true actually in the Houston Independent School District as well, where uh, there was a lot of race bias yeah. in some of the gifted and talented programs. You know, I remember uh, parents thinking, well, you know, white parents thinking, well, my kid absolutely belongs in this program. And many times they're placed in the program, whether they were gifted and talented or not, right? And so we've seen this around the country as well, where some kids, especially uh, from more affluent backgrounds, are automatically put into some of these programs. So that's there's a little bit of bias there. Uh, If you're creating a school district, would you have a gifted and talented program? My whole school district would be gifted and talented. No, but if you think starting at kindergarten, you can recognize students that might be moving quicker um, but if you're automatically taking out gifted and talented it's kind of harming the other students in interaction and growth um, just as you remove all students to AP or IB programs a classroom needs a bunch of minds a bunch of talent levels to group and have that bounce of active learning um, so I would want more interaction between all my students and giving everyone the same opportunities and resources. It's interesting. And when you look at some of the big urban school districts, right, the the reason why they maintain sort of the uh, uh, the number of kids that are affluent in those schools, uh, the racial mix, sometimes is because of magnet programs, right? Is that yeah. when you have a DeBakey, which is by its very definition isn't gifted and talented, but, but when you look at it, it's these are gifted and talented kids. Right. Uh, but that's one of the things that keeps – a lot of families from fleeing to the suburbs, their kids are going to Debakey or to Carnegie or to some of the HSPVA, right? Some of the, yeah. and these are some of the finest high schools in America, right? Yeah. But you hear we had the Young Women's Leadership Network and those schools yeah. on a couple of weeks ago yeah. that they hold them all to a very high rigor yep. and they hold them accountable and give them the supports. And so I think that's the the key to it is how much are we holding those in traditional schools to the rigor, but also providing teachers and students with the support yeah. to have gifted and talented traditional schools. I was in graduate when I was in graduate school up at uh, that big liberal elite university, Columbia University in New York City, <laughs> the University what- of Mississippi in Oxford. <laughs> yeah. uh, at Columbia, it was uh, one of my professors was Diane Ravitch, who is a big education person, and she wondered whether schools like the New York City School Department might not every school be a magnet school. And so not necessarily uh, a school that is uh, sort of picking and choosing what it wants, but students get to go to the theme that they're interested yeah. in. But in a sense, it's appealing to what you're saying, right? That that everyone gets a class that they want. Everyone is in a talented, gifted program of sorts. And so sort of an interesting idea, right? This idea yeah. that you can still have magnets without being... Uh, without being elitist in yeah. what you're doing. Yeah, so. so we didn't pick up, but I, I'm I don't want to say. I'm thumbs up yeah. on it. I'm um, thumbs up the model. Thumbs down removing children from the world. We had enough differences. There. Yeah. Gave him some new theme music this week. Very good, yes. <laughs> so now we're going to uh, uh, Under the Dome with uh, Jason Sabo. Uh, on the line with us is our good buddy in Austin, uh, Jason Sabo. Jason, how you doing today, man? I'm very good. I'm actually physically under the dome. And as I speak, I am in the historic Supreme Court chamber between the House and Senate galleries here in the Texas Capitol. Excellent. And what is the mood? I, you know, I was there with you yesterday, Jason. And what's the, you know, you and I talked a lot about vouchers right this is seems to be voucher week at the take texas voucher day for sure yeah so for tell sure me a little bit day. what what's the what's the take over there the the governor has bust in a lot of people yeah i mean this is a uh, i've been around looking this building for about 25 years and i think uh actually probably at some point in the next three or four hours 
uh, the Texas voucher debate is probably going to go farther than it ever has in the 25 years that I've been doing this. There are four pieces of legislation that are up this afternoon in the Senate Education Committee that all kind of in aggregate form uh, the policy framework for a voucher program in Texas. And I think today uh, folks just need to be aware that something that many of us have talked about for years is kind of this possibility. It is gaining a lot of traction, and there's a lot of a lot of steam on that train coming out of the station. And I think that over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to see vouchers either pass or get significantly farther than they ever have before in Texas. Uh, one of the things that a lot of people, as we talk about vouchers uh, in Texas, a lot of people feel like the House may end up holding this up because there's this general feeling that the Speaker maybe is not in favor of vouchers and that indeed the majority uh, certainly of moderate republicans and when you put that with the democrats that there is a majority that that doesn't like the idea of vouchers but there is this political climate right uh really pushing especially rural republicans who would traditionally be against vouchers there's this political climate pushing them towards this uh, what's your take on on the house and its reaction well, we'll see if this does, the vouchers do get stopped this session. It will be in the House. And if you look at the composition of the Senate, I'm sorry, the House Public Education Committee, most folks, kind of capital watchers, don't know how it's going to break mm. uh, because they ultimately don't know what the voucher bills that come over to the House are going to look like. Uh, for example, you noted, Bob, that rural Republicans have typically been, you know, really have really had strong opposition to vouchers. But the kinds of people who are getting elected to the legislature from rural Texas aren't coming from school districts and school boards anymore. They're coming from other places. They're not necessarily coming up through the community and having a broader understanding of the implications of some of these ideas. So it is a different political climate. These are different politicians. They're different priorities. The governor and the lieutenant governor have made it abundantly clear that this is their number one priority this session. And those very rural Republicans that you were mentioning a minute ago, the governor is going into their legislative districts in during a legislative, during a legislative session and having town hall meetings in their districts, which is very much sending a signal that if you do not support vouchers, I will probably come after you in your Republican primary, which is going to have a chilling effect on people who would traditionally be interested in opposing these vouchers. And also remember, the legislature has an extraordinary amount of money to play with this session. They could hold rural school districts harmless and still do a voucher program. Just right now, literally, as we are talking, the Texas Senate is voting out property tax cut bills uh, to the tune of billions and billions of dollars. So the news tomorrow that's going to appear in the papers is going to be, on one hand, the legislature is cutting your property taxes in the Senate. On the other hand, the Senate is, a, is you know, advancing vouchers in committee. So as long as people are getting their property tax cuts, the thinking might be going, they're going to go along with the vouchers. As long as mm. rural school districts aren't losing their money, they're going to go along with the vouchers. A lot of money on the table, which gives them a lot of different options they haven't had previously. Jason, you said 25 years. This is the most the conversation's picked up. I'm just curious of how that conversation's really leading, thinking about the push for more accountability and the political pressure on teachers and schools right now, um, whether it's curriculum or just general classroom environment, how that kind of contradicts with vouchers pulling the money to go to private systems that don't have... That wouldn't allow that accountability that's being pushed on the other hand. Right. It's a really fascinating and important point that you're making, which is that the proposals that are being put forth, the accountability, the testing, the curricular stuff, they're all up in your business, right, right. that we're seeing more and more with public schools. Uh, and if there's a lengthy debate yesterday on whether or not Lonesome Dove would be removed from Texas school libraries, right? That was mm -hmm. a little debate yesterday wow. in the House. And the, uh, and the reality is that we're looking at a situation where, uh, where, this is, the, the, where the school districts are being held to an entirely different level of scrutiny and accountability than the private schools are in these voucher bills. Mm -hmm. And that's problematic for anyone who cares about taxpayer dollars being utilized in, a, in, a, in an effective and accountable manner. We simply cannot be giving vouchers out to the private schools without the kind of accountability that the public school districts have, have been, you know, forced, understandably and appropriately, 
to uh, to abide by. No, I, I mean, doing is kind of going backwards. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Jason, and you know that we worked really hard to shut down all the bad charters, right? That were misappropriating, misusing public funds. There'd be no way to do the same with these bad private schools that would be springing up all over the place. But anyway, uh, this is uh, there's so much evidence against vouchers, uh, but I think at this point, no longer is our is our state legislature looking at evidence, looking at best practices. It's pure political, and they're just trying to. To push this through but but i want to while we have you here and one of the big topics in houston is of course the hisd the houston independent school district takeover by the texas education agency tell me jason what is the buzz in austin around this or are people talking about it at all not to the degree that i thought that they would yeah and there for a lot of reasons man there's this a uh, there's this there's this fail complete session vibe over here right now that it's just a question of we already know what's going to happen and let's just go through the motions until it does that's like much 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 more so than any session i've ever previously experienced yeah there's a session that we already know what's going to pass and now we all just have to like robotically make sure that we're walking in line appropriately so that, that what's going to happen will happen i don't play the game that way and never have never will mm-hmm. but the reality that we're looking at is that this week just in general, if you look at the bills that are being filed and moving just this one week, I would argue that the bills hitting committees this week are more groundbreaking in terms of the policy changes that they shall rot than what a legislature typically does over the course of an entire decade. And I'm talking one week of committee hearings. Wow. The bills that are passing this session, are, this, that are they're moving this week, are huge and substantive policy reforms, not performative political posturing. And I think folks need to really kind of appreciate that reality that we're dealing with right now. What, one last quick question on this same topic before we move on to our next uh, topic here at uh, Growing Up in America. Jason, um, is the governor going to use this idea of a, the takeover of the largest urban school district in Texas. Is this a political talking point for him as he runs for president? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, how could it not be, right? And, and I think that's what a lot of people worry about in Houston, in Dallas, in San Antonio, is that it's not about making our schools better. It's about political points, right? And so uh, Jason yeah. Sabo is our, our man in Austin under the dome. Jason, thank you for all the work you do. You and Mandy have just been going gangbusters there. And uh, uh, we didn't even talk about the big rally day yesterday with early education, but there's... It's great. 150... 158- pro-early pro childhood people here. I know folks are getting distracted. I know folks are getting frustrated, concerned, maybe a little bit dismayed, but please don't give up on paying attention to what's happening here because it does fundamentally impact every facet of your lives. Yeah, Jason, thanks so much, man. Thank you for being up on Growing Up in America. You're listening to Growing Up in America on 90.1 KPFT Radio. Uh, and uh, with us is our um, Generation Z correspondent times two, right? Uh, Becky Quintanilla is with us. Uh, Becky, how are you doing today? I'm doing really good. Uh, I like. I am one of the Gen Z here. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we're full of Gen Zs over yeah. here, right? There's Gen Z and, uh, and me. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, Dr. Bob, I think you could pass. That's, that's awfully kind of you. I don't think the Generation X people would be that kind, but thank you very much. So tell me, today we're going to do sort of Generation Z talk. Yes. And uh, over the years at Growing Up in America, one of our most popular segments has been this where we sort of look at language and see what's what are people saying these days and what's different. And so tell me a little bit, what are some of the words that you're going to try to quiz me with today around Generation Z? Well, let's go to the yeah. first word. Uh, I'll ask you, what do you think? simp means simp yes so i'm gonna think that's very sympathetic someone who's a little sympathetic to Uh, you know what i'll spell it out too s-i-m-p yeah so sympathetic i'm gonna go with someone who's a little sympathetic all right well i'm gonna tell you the definition first okay so um it's someone that's crushing hard actions that in in whenever they're crushing hard they're like working really hard they're crushing hard like I have a crush on you. Oh, a so crush. So they like and admire someone. And and they're called a simp? Yes, someone who's crushed. So if it, someone has a big crush on me yeah. and I don't even know about it, they're a simp? Yes. Whenever it 
when it, in addition to the actions that they do. So some of those actions may seem desperate slash pathetic. So it, it sometimes it is okay. used in a negative connotation. But for right. example, I'm in a relationship and I do stuff that I wouldn't have done. So is that but, very simp? So I'm a very I'm a simp. Oh, really? Yeah. Right. Because you're like boyfriends far away. This is going to be about all about yeah. Becky show. So your boyfriend's far away and like that. It's like too much, isn't it? You're well, being so simp. I'm a simp because I, I'm still with him and I am in a long distance relationship. Does he me. listen to the program, by oh, the way? Um, maybe. So maybe he'll give me a call after this. <laughs> but, all right. Yeah. What's, what's our next word? The next word, it's a little, I feel like maybe you won't get this one. Okay. So it's called bussin'. 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 Um, I'm going to think like working really hard. It's close. Um, it means when something is tasty or it's really great. So See, that's not even close. You're being very <laughs> kind to me. <laughs> so if something tastes really great. It's yeah. bussin'. Yeah. So in a oh, sentence, man. I would use it. This fried calamari. It's bussin'. It's bussin'. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. What is the, the, what are the roots of that word? You know what? You don't know. Don't, That's don't okay. Know, yeah, I'm getting I, into it. Yeah. Bussin, I, you just have okay. to start using it. And, and it's really exclusively with food? Uh, it's typically used... With food. Yeah, but if something's really great, you... Okay. Yeah. So that movie could be bussin'? Yeah. It could yeah. be? Okay. Very good. Okay. And the next one is cap. Cap. Top of the line. This is the best one. It's cap. I don't know. Is that... It's a good guess. Uh-huh. Total opposite, though. Um, <laughs> so it means like it's some, it's a lie or like you. Oh, it's a lie. So I mean, an example, I just got a promotion at work. And you don't believe them. Cap. Just say cap. Cap. So, oh, like. That's it, cap. It's almost like BS. Yeah. It's cap. Yes, exactly. Okay. There you go. Oh, cap. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if I hear Donald Trump, cap almost always. Yes. Yeah. Okay. You, very good. You got it. You're getting it. Yeah. 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 Okay. And this one is kind of an easy one, but mm-hmm. it's Slay. Oh, Slay. Yeah, yes. like really killing it. Yes. Really doing well. Yeah, so that's a big one. Is that sort of old? Is that why I got it? It's been around, <laughs> but as you know, <laughs> um, we were talking about Why it. is everyone in the studio <laughs> laughing at me right now? <laughs> we had to put an easy one out there. Okay. Um, no, we were talking about it earlier. It's not really used in a professional setting, but okay. it's so like typical to say you know it's a good compliment um like you really slayed yeah so like the children like the children the children at risk staff they really slay yes i would use that Mm -hmm. i'll probably teams it to someone but okay yeah (laughs) and do we have one more yes um this one's more of just the saying it's not can really be used in a sentence side eye Oh, giving someone the side eye yeah like uh really is that sort of like yeah so I'd say, instead of saying, like, I'm judging you or, like... I'm giving you the side eye. I'd just say side eye. Oh, just side eye. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, if they say something that's kind of, like, iffy, mm. instead of saying, like, or giving them the look, just say side eye. Side eye. Side eye. Excellent. Does... Is that... You give, like, Claire the side eye all the time, don't you? Is that sort of what you do? All the time. You? Even virtually. Virtu- you know? Virtual side eyes. You know the one that Claire uses a lot, and I know she's not doesn't have access to the microphone. She d- uses chef's kiss a lot. You know what? I do use that one as well. Yeah, so. that's like... So that's uh, that's sort of like new these days, right? People use this idea of sh- when something is like a superlative, it's a chef's kiss. Yes. Yeah, very good. You could also use that with bussin. Bussin. Yeah. So listen, this food, bussin, bussin, chef's kiss. Mm-hmm. Or very like if good. you... Just you know the chef? He slayed it. He really did. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Right. Excellent. And if you don't think it's good, cap. Oh my... Dr. Bob, <laughs> you're really good at this. Wow. <laughs> oh my word. Uh, that is Becky Quintanilla. She's our Gen Z correspondent. And we need to figure out a, what to call this little uh, segment. I mean, that was fantastic. I'm yeah, bringing that little, every other week. So uh, Gen Z talk with yeah. Becky. I think there you go. That's I'm it. Too old Gen, for Gen Z, Z talk with Becky, right? Very good. All right. Uh, Claire, what did you think of Gen Z talk with Becky? I, I loved it. I was cracking up. I know you were. You, and you <laughs> I thought you would get more of those. <laughs> well, you have a lot of confidence in me. But I did get Slay and I got <laughs> Side Eye. Yeah, I mean, Side Eye, you should know. But now you know you could say it. You don't even have to give it anymore. Oh, yeah. Because I've been side like, eye. Giving, my eyes are like out of whack. Yeah. I've been so, giving so much Side <laughs> I'm Eye. I'm worried for the next staff meeting. You're <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, just you, throw them all at once. You should be worried. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, hey, Layla's on the phone. Layla Mazzali is uh, our director of the Center for Social Measurement and Evaluation at Children at Risk with our data of the day. Layla, how you doing? I'm doing well. I was really enjoying uh, that segment as well. Did you know all of those, Layla? Um, I did, actually, surprisingly. All of them. I will say that I... I learned cat very recently um, oh. because I was, I would see it, I call it the Insta-Tick because I don't have TikTok, so I watch Instagram Reels, which I understand are outdated, but I would always see cat or like no cat, and I'm like, what does this mean? <laughs> wow. So you I know, like, I watch a lot of TikTok, and somehow I've never picked up on that, so. Really? Uh, but it's I, fading out. It's but, fading. Uh, you know, Layla, you're like queen of the side eye, too, aren't you? I mean, you, you got the whole side eye thing down. I like to think I'm a lot kinder than that. I agree, <laughs> Layla. I never give the side eye. You know, it's also, I may not be completely understand. I may be overusing. You know, there's a, a term that people use in law school called gunner. And do you know a gunner? No, like, I do not. It's the guy who sits in the front of the class and raises their hand oh, all the time. That's like beaver. a gunner. And, but, I, but apparently there's like this whole negative connotation. And I once introduced someone who was on the board at Children at Risk as a gunner. <laughs> And and everyone's like, whoa. It was like horrible. Well, right? There's another so, word for that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sure he gave me the side eye. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he so, did. Very good. Uh, okay, the, the the number of the day, uh, we were trying to guess what this is, uh, 1,691. Give us an idea what that is, Layla. Um, the, well, I can give you the hint that I'll give you is that it's not enough. Yeah. It never is. It never is in Texas, right? It's never enough in Texas. So go on. Um, so six hundred and ninety one, um, one thousand six hundred and ninety one dollars is the median monthly wage for early childhood educators in the state of Texas. Wow. Not enough. So what does that mean for us in Texas, Layla, when we're not paying early educators? And I mean, obviously, we're going to have a shortage, but what does it mean for those that actually do this job? Does it mean uh, that if you have any talent, you're moving on someplace else? Or if you have a passion for this, you're like uh, having a tough time paying the rent? I guess it's all of those things, right? Yeah, it's all of those things. So, you know, folks are going to have a really hard time staying in a position if you know, after their rent is paid, which, by the way, you know, 1691 is only a few hundred dollars higher than the median wow, rent paid by wow. Texas residents. So that means they only have a few hundred dollars after they pay their rent to take care of groceries, health care, utilities, transportation costs, anything else that you need to survive. And then, you know, let alone if you have a family, children of your own, um, you're going to be in a really tight spot and probably looking for a position where you can support your family a little bit better if you can. Um Roughly 56% of child care educators qualify for at least one form of public assistance, such as Medicaid um, or food stamps. It causes really high turnover among educators, and of course, that's going to impact the quality of child care that children receive, and if parents don't have access to high-quality health care, they're not going to be able to participate in the labor force either. Um, so it has really far-reaching implications for Texas's economy overall. Yeah, and thinking of these child cares, even if they wanted and had great intention, what does the flexibility look like in their budgets? I mean, I would say, oh, as far as um, paying ECE educators, they have often really limited flexibility. So even if you have child care directors who really want to pay educators more, they often lack that flexibility. So what we really need to see is more state support going to early childhood centers, increasing those subsidies and increasing the flexibility that comes along with those subsidies. Yeah, and yesterday, how was the pulse? This is kind of a Dr. Bob slash Layla question. Um, At the Capitol, thinking of the ECE rally behind paying educators more. Um, I I thought, you know, we had a lot of providers that spoke, a number of really great providers that uh, did an excellent job of speaking publicly and, and passionately about the plight of their early education center. Um, you know, these these providers are a big part of our labor force, right? If moms and dads don't have a place to put their kids, we don't have the workforce that we need in Texas. And so hearing these early education providers talk about their needs and talk about the fact that they can't pay enough, 
you know, it's it's interesting. It's uh, we get a lot of federal money in the state of Texas, and yet the state doesn't really match much of it at all to right. to enforce uh, to really uh, uh, give money to these early education providers. So I thought the rally was very interesting in in terms of bringing to light all the needs of these early education centers, uh, yeah. Layla. I know that next week we're going to have a press conference on on sort of the state of children uh, in Houston, the Growing Up in Houston release that you've been working on. When it comes to early education and these numbers, what sort of what sort of comes to mind for you is sort of one of the key things that Houston really needs to pay attention to around early education. Yeah, so I mean, I think Houston as a city could really stand to invest more in ensuring that there is high-quality early childhood education available to all families. Um, We've seen across the board in Texas and in Houston that there is a huge swath of um, the state that have a real dearth of available child care centers. And so what we need across the board is a greater investment in these centers and in the families that depend on these centers to be able to participate in the labor force. Very good. Layla Mazzali is the director of the Center for Social Measurement and Evaluation, and uh, every week she comes on and slays this with uh, all the data. (laughs) No cap. I'm a simp for data. (laughs) A simp for data. There you go. And so... that that's uh what well, we couldn't do it without you that layla thanks so much for all that you do and thanks sir for being on the growing up in america program thanks guys very good you're listening to growing up in america on kpft all right moving up to dallas uh, to the Commit Partnership. Dr. Sharla Horton-Williams is with us. Dr. Sharla, how you doing today? Are you there, Sharla? There you are. Yes, can you hear me? Now we, we can. can. Very okay, good. Great. So, Sharla, how are you doing today? I'm well. Thank you for having me today. Absolutely, absolutely. One of the things that we wanted to talk about is uh, high-impact tutoring. Uh, when we live in this day and age when we're really trying to turn around so many schools, uh, trying to make, you know, after the pandemic, trying to get kids up to speed, uh, talk a little bit about some of the things that you've been engaged in or that you see, according to the research, that are having a big impact on kids around this uh, high-impact tutoring. Yeah, I think the biggest thing, um, while high-impact tutoring is really, really hard to operationalize because it's staff-heavy and requires lots of um, thoughtful scheduling, when it's done with fidelity, when you actually get those group sizes right and that dosage right, um, the research bears out in practice. Um, We have a couple of partner districts here in the North Texas area that are having some really, really good outcomes, particularly in early literacy. with K through two um, early interventions, and um, there's just so much promise. Um, and I think that, like in Texas, if we can get the both the legislation and the funding, and um, really just th- this call to action, this urgency, uh, if we can get all that right sized, I think that we'll be um, really positioned to see some stronger outcomes as a result of high impact tutoring. Charlotte, one of the, the, the two forces at work here is that if you, when you and I go into the schools, we can see there's a, you know, while we have some high performing schools, there's still a significant group of kids that are behind, that are mm-hmm. sometimes yeah. years behind, right? Uh, yep. And we have a lot more than you and I would want or that anyone would want to see in the state of Texas. Um, but also, when we talk about doing the things that we need to do to get those kids where they are, which includes high-impact tutoring, it costs money that the state doesn't seem to want to spend all the time. How do you sort of jive those two things together? Yeah, I think that the biggest thing, like, I know that we talk a lot about funding crises in in education, but there's lots of ways that we, like, we've got to start to think about how we spend our money, the money we do have. Yeah, we want more. But what about the resources that we do have and how can we reallocate those, reallocate those funds to meet the objectives that we're trying to meet? Um, where are we spending money in one area that perhaps we could shift some of those resources to another area? And that doesn't 
has to come at the state level. A lot of the way we spend money in schools, um, uh, in education, is controlled at the local level. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's also a matter of school district and system leaders identifying their priorities and allocating funds according to their actual priorities, which should be, and, and I hope are, and I've seen, actually improving student outcomes. Yeah. Yeah, and thinking about, I know the magic ratio is three to one teacher, but during a school day after school, what would that look like and staff capacity and funding for this to work statewide? Yeah, one of the things that we've identified very early on is like right now, um, it's nearly impossible to do this work without the partnership of um, high impact tutoring vendors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so lots of the lots of the tutoring is currently being delivered virtually. There are also um, districts that are having um, a lot of success with face-to-face tutoring, particularly in secondary. Um, and I think that it requires a level of coordination and collaboration between those um, high-impact tutoring providers and um, campus and district-level leaders in order to get it at the right time. We ideally want high-impact tutoring to take place during the school day, but the, the truth is that that's going to mean having to give something up um, and I think that's also some of the tension with lawmakers and with decision makers is like, well, if it can't be this and it can't be that, when can it be? Um, okay. So we really, once again, got to re- investigate those priorities and um, start to align our expectations according to what this moment demands. And given the number of kids that we know are in need of significant academic interventions to be successful, we've got to rethink what those priorities are. And it doesn't have to be in perpetuity, you know, but, you know, for the next three to five years, what is the investment that we're going to make in kids, not just financially, but even invest, investing in um, school structures and schedules and how can we do things differently so that we can get this outcome that we need. Right. And ultimately, we're meeting students where they are, like you said, not just looking at where we're spending our money. But if we're not spending the time catching them up and trying to propel them, we're never going to. They're constantly catching up. And we know that in in Texas, historically, only about one in seven kids actually reaches grade level once they um, have fallen behind. So and that's not healthy for students. That's not good for students. It's not healthy for our economy. Like there's there's so much at risk if we don't get kids caught up. And it you know we have this intervention right in front of us that is hard, but it's doable. Um, and so if we start to align priorities and start to align resources, um, then we can see some really great things happen for kids. Charlotte, one of the things that we know about uh, tutoring of any sort, including high-impact tutoring, is that it costs money. And um, But we have – there's a lot of money in Texas right now with ESSER funds, which will run out at some yep. point, but the idea is to get kids caught up. But in a day and age when schools are having trouble finding teachers, right? We've been talking a lot yep. about this lately uh, – Finding tutors, has this been a, a sort of a difficult thing as well as we start trying to get our kids back up to speed? Absolutely, and it's yeah. one of the reasons that districts have had to turn to vendors. I think ideally when we first got into high-impact tutoring, uh, when House Bill 4545 was passed, everybody's immediate reaction was, oh, we'll pay our teachers um, an extra per hour stipend yeah. to tutor our kids after school, or... The other one was, oh, we'll hire our retired teachers, mm. yeah. neither of which were eager to get back in the classroom <laughs> <Right>. or eager <laughs> to the time, the, or just didn't have the time. Um, and then there was, oh, well, what about college students? Well, I, yeah, that might be great, but college students that needed to work um, needed to have significant hours um, as part of their um, tutoring assignments. And so what we saw, one thing was, and this is where all the coordination comes in, um, most schools in a district operate on the exact same schedule. So um, if I have a tutor that's coming in to work with a group of students, I only have one slot that's available. I well with uh, yeah. college students, for example. And so one of the things is, um, yeah, there's lots of, um, there's a huge staffing need, yeah. but there's also lots of, non-traditional places that we can look to fill that need. Number one, we've turned to tutoring vendors, which has, you know, really been a godsend for so many districts because mm-hmm. without it, they couldn't staff for tutoring. But number two, we've also seen districts turn to paraprofessionals mm-hmm. um, and, like, reassign. So where historically a paraprofessional may have served in capacity X, 
now they're serving in a tutoring capacity. Wow. Um, we've also seen some districts turn to parents. You know, we've got parents that come to yeah. school um, and might volunteer for three or four hours a day. Historically, they've been doing bulletin boards. Let's turn that to a more, um, use them in a more meaningful way during this moment. So I think that there are lots of opportunities for districts to rethink their how they're sourcing for tutors. Yep, um, yep, very good. Vendors, but then also who's right in front of you. Yeah, Dr. Charlotte Horton-Williams with the Commit Partnership. Thank you so much, Charlotte. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Take care. All of these lines are being crossed over. All right, from classroom to classroom, let's go. Uh, we have uh, James Dearden with us, who is a coach, uh, an academic coach. He's with Ch- Children at Risk with the Texas A-plus Challenge. James, how you doing, man? I'm good. How are you guys today? We're very good. Good. James, I wanted to talk, we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the HISD takeover and what that's, what's going on in the classroom and what you're hearing and whether there's yeah. even sort of, uh, when you talk to your fellow coaches and others that are in the the Houston Independent School District with this TEA takeover looming, the Texas Education Agency, what sort of reaction are you getting from uh, teachers? You know, surprisingly enough, um, uh, I'm partnering with about three or four HIV campuses, and no one is really talking about it. Um, Mm -hmm. I I think uh, that is probably for a couple of reasons. One, um, they've had time to process because many of the campuses were preparing for this for at least two to three weeks. Yeah. Now, yeah. Once they heard, um, uh, they have state assessments coming up. So they have yeah. more, uh, <laughs> more things that are a priority than this takeover. And then three, uh, most day to day operations on campuses won't be affected. Right. right now, at least not until June. So n- no one is really talking about it. it. It's kind of a casual conversation in passing. Hey, yeah, we're about to be taken over. Yeah. Um, well, thinking about, I'm glad to hear that it's not shaking up schools, especially with testing, because adding most pressure, adding any more anxiety is probably not healthy for the school environment as a whole. Um, but thinking about long-term and longevity, how will this impact school to school? Because we know and we see it all on the district level. Um, and I know right now there's not or could be not much talk because we don't really see how this could have a trickle-down effect. Right. I, I don't think it's going to have much of an impact on day-to-day operations for most of the campuses. I think campuses um, that have been mentioned as to the reasons for the takeover are somewhat worried because uh, for years they have been talks of closing those campuses and there's a level of uncertainty around will my campus be closed but outside of those campuses um, I don't think the day-to-day operations going to change very much Uh, not teachers not principals once you get outside of a campus there's some things that will probably change yeah Yeah. at the Uh, campus level not so much uh, James and Claire, Claire, you've been a teacher as well, and I wanted to ask both of you when when you have a change in leadership, like a superintendent, right? Uh, and especially with TEA bringing in their own superintendent, there could be a whole new mission. But for a teacher in the classroom, uh, obviously they may be a little worried. There may be a little bit of angst. Does it change your life very much, James? Of uh, me personally, no. Um, when I was actually teaching in HISD, I believe that we had two, maybe three superintendent changes mm-hmm. during my time at HISD. And my focus on a daily basis was to educate students. Yeah. Um, and that never changed, you know, so, so it didn't really matter um, who the superintendent was. Uh, the things that affected me more were when the, there was a campus leadership change, a principal change, but as far as superintendent, area superintendents that didn't really change anything that happened inside of my classroom but james for you though right i mean many times a campus a superintendent change will will does mean that there's likely a campus leader change right i mean there there must be that little bit of worry i guess could be yes um fortunately for me uh the two never coincided yeah um so and i never really 
thought about, oh, we're getting a new superintendent, so we're going to possibly yeah. have a new principal. Um, it never really crossed my mind, but I, I can see situations where uh, that could happen. Yeah. And, of course, what people don't know is James is this master teacher, and yeah. like all he's had is accolades <laughs> his whole life, and so it doesn't. How about, Claire, for you, when you saw yeah. superintendent changes, what did that mean for you inside the classroom? Uh, I think for me, especially if I was in HISD now as a teacher, I would be more concerned with how much or how plugged in the superintendent placed, if replaced and a new one comes in, um, what they would do. So if they're adding, wiping a team and putting more political pressures. Um, I saw a teacher out in Austin post today that she was written up for teaching her students constitutional rights too much. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Um, and so it's just interesting to think how much – if. And again, it depends on your school principal and your leadership at your school, but how much they themselves feel pressured by this leadership change. Um, and if they feel like they need to be stricter on the teachers, um, I guess I would be more concerned on the politics going into the classroom if so chosen. Yeah. James, uh, one final question for you. You and I earlier today, we were talking about teacher shortages. And um, when we look at teacher shortages, uh, that has a little bit to do with the, the leadership at the top, but it has more to do with, with respect, I guess, right, that teachers are getting from the general public? Definitely. Um, a lot to do with respect from the public, from the students. It, uh, and I think I was talking about how some teachers – they don't necessarily leave the profession because of money or, or students per se. It, it's the um, unrealistic expectations that teachers feel that have right. been placed on them um, by everyone in, in society, right. you know. Um, and, and so that it weighs on you and it drives you out of the profession saying, oh, I can do something different without all these pressures. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've, I've, seen teachers who said my whole life all I wanted to do was be an educator and leave the profession in two to three years because of the extra stuff that they felt they had to deal with. They couldn't just go in the classroom and teach um, and educate students. James, if you you worked for a uh, do we have our next guest on? Oh, we do have our next guest. Okay. Well, I was ready to stretch here. <laughs> we'll have it back. James Zierden is, uh, uh, is our man in, on the school campuses, and he's with the Texas yeah. A-plus Challenge and Children at Risk. James, thanks so much for being on Growing Up in America. We'll talk to you soon, man. Bye, James. Same to you. Thanks. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, you're listening to Growing Up in America on KPFT. Uh, we're here at 90.1 FM. Claire Dutres with Bob Sanborn. We're just uh, doing it up here on the air. With us on the air today from Texans Care for Children is uh, uh, our good buddy, Dave Fagan. Dave, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. Good to be with you all. Nice to be with you, too. So, David, I was with you yesterday in Austin. Uh, early education, child care, uh, big deal Uh Give us a little bit of the lowdown in terms of what's happening legislatively. Are you feeling good about the Texas commitment to early education? Or are you feeling like a little scared about what might happen? Or well, both? Yeah, thanks again for having me. I do think it's a little bit of both. I, I'm encouraged that more than ever this session, it's been made clear to lawmakers that there is a child care crisis. This crisis started long before we'd ever heard of COVID-19. Um, and we have a dire financing problem. And ultimately, parents cannot pay more than they're paying. Programs cannot be bringing in less revenue. And teachers cannot be making less. And so they understand now that there's a, there's a real crisis taking place. I believe they understand the why. But there's more convincing that needs to uh, be had for them to understand the how. And that's our job from now until Sine dies. To date, most of the money that uh, goes towards subsidizing child care for families that uh, for low income families to date, that's mostly or almost exclusively come from the federal government. Is there a chance that the state will get engaged here, understanding that it's the state workforce that's at risk? Well, we hope so, um, because to really solve this child care math problem, this financing problem, we will need local governments to step up. We will need Congress and the White House to continue to step up. We will need philanthropy 
But we cannot do this without the Texas legislature doing its part. The legislature can no longer pass the buck. We need an investment this session and in future sessions to ensure child care is affordable and available to working families. And how much would that cost to put a number on it from the state needing to invest? Well, so we worked hard this interim with children at risk, with child care programs to really identify what were the uh, the, the costs that could help save off the closures that we're seeing and fearing are about to get a lot worse when federal funding expires. Um, and we came to the legislature with a proposal for approximately $2 billion to continue the stabilization grants that the Texas Workforce Commission worked really hard to set up during COVID-19. Um, that allowed us to pilot what works, and we learned that the federal funding worked. It helped save off closures. And so mm-hmm. that $2 billion comes from continuing the stabilization grants and critically providing the retention bonuses we need to keep early childhood educators who on average make around $11 an hour with little to no benefits. If we are able to invest in retention bonuses and the continuation of the stabilization grants, we will be able to stave off closures and serve more eligible families. Dave, one of the things that probably a lot of the general public doesn't understand is that uh, we sit here in this red state. Everyone understands that. But early education is on the legislative agenda, right? We're talking about it in a positive way. In many red states, early education is like considered a blue issue. How did how did it become an economic development issue in Texas uh, as opposed to the way it's seen in so many other states? Yeah, I mean, there's been some incredible advocates on this. You know, we've had the support this session of folks like the Texas Restaurant Association, who uh, who was at the rally yesterday yeah. and made very clear that um, for them to have the workforce that they need, they need child care. Um, and, you know, I think COVID-19 uh, allowed folks to really see life without child care. Mm-hmm. Although child care did stay open, many schools closed, and families understood very clearly what it would be like to not have access to quality child care. And that doesn't that's not a blue problem or a red problem. That's something that all working families understand. Um, so, again, I think there's an understanding of the why of this. They understand why child care is important. They understand why we need to do more. We just have to get them to accept that there isn't a magic bullet for this that doesn't involve funding. We need an investment uh, that can allow us to support the availability of child care without passing on those costs to working families. Yeah, and David, just to really emphasize, like you said, we saw kind of a glimpse of what it could look like if we don't invest when federal dollars run out. What would the closures look like, the percentage or the estimate, um, if we don't invest as a state? Yeah, well, this is what's really dispiriting. And, you know, there was a recent survey done by our friends at the Texas Association for the Education of Young Children, which is the largest provider association in Texas. They did a survey of their members to ask this very question. And they found that over 40 percent are certainly or possibly going to be closing once the federal funding closes of those respondents to the survey. Forty percent. So keep in mind, um, there are deserts today. We do not have enough child care today. We're not serving at capacity today. So if we lose, we don't have 40 percent of programs to lose. So we are in a very dire position. And I can just say when I talk to Many of the providers who were at the rally at the Capitol yesterday, when I talked to providers who've been here to testify over and over again, they've all told me the same thing. This is not bluster. We are at the brink of closure if Texas does not invest this session. So it's a dire spot to be, um, and we're hoping that the legislature's listening, because if they're not listening, um, we're going to have a much bleaker picture next session. Yeah, that's for sure. You ready to ask uh, David some really fun questions here? David, this is I the am. fun part of our show. We like to end on a oh, nice good. note. Yeah. So, Very child-centric, better, better too. That. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> okay. David, uh, what did you I, – I know that you're a child activist now, right? You, and you're the director of early mm-hmm. learning policy. But growing up, what did you want to be? What did little David Fagan want to be? Well, I wanted to be an NBA player, but that just hasn't really worked out yet. And, and I'm worrying that I may have missed my window. Um, maybe. Maybe, you know. right? Maybe next year. <laughs> wow. So since that hasn't worked out, you know, I, I, I thought about all sorts of things before I got into early childhood education advocacy. But I will say it's all a credit to my mom, who was a preschool teacher for over 25 years. So I, always, I was indoctrinated early 
with this. Wow, bringing uh, it back. Bringing it back so, to early education. So, Very so good. I definitely had the passion early. Yeah. Okay. Next question is, what actor would play you in a movie about your life? Oh, the David Fagan story coming out of Hollywood. <laughs> who's who's going to play you, David? What NBA what player? What film that will be. Um, yeah, I, 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 I have gotten the Nicolas Cage comparison more times than once. Okay. Um, <laughs> Very intense. Uh, and I don't know if that's... Yeah, it's an intense. We might just have the same... It, it might be a hairline similarity, unfortunately, <laughs> but I, I, I think that uh, Nick Cage, if he's up for it, I, I would welcome it. Well, you know, yeah. they say he's a massive talent, so yeah. uh, that's very good. Uh, what, uh, what was your favorite TV show growing up, David? You know, I guess it depends on the year, right? I, I mean, I my parents continue to remind me about how often I forced them to watch Barney uh, as a little one. Um, <laughs> that you know, uh, they would they told me how you know my sister loved Mister Rogers, my brother loved Sesame Street, which are both much more watchable shows than Barney. But yeah. I just wanted Barney and that big purple dinosaur. So, and then you know, I went through my SpongeBob phases and things like that. But uh, yeah, yeah Barney, Nicolas I guess, Cage was the face. one. Yeah, right. SpongeBob yeah. straight to Nicolas yes. Cage. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. What was your national treasure? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> David. What was your favorite book to be read or to read as a child? Oh man, that's a good question. I mean, so when I was a little older, obviously I had my um, my you know board books and all of those things that were read to me. My mom was a preschool teacher, so you better believe we, we did not all. miss those opportunities. Um, but uh, I do recall very. Explicitly, uh, in the early Harry Potters that came out when I was younger, my mom and I would read them together. Where one of us would just read out loud a chapter, then she, then the next one would read a chapter out loud. Um, so I have fond memories of that. But you know, I I had my Goodnight Moon and all of those as well before. Awesome, very good. David Fagan is the director of early uh, education policy at Texans Care for Children, a great organization out in Austin. David, thanks so much for all that you do. Thanks for being on the Growing Up in America program. Hey, thanks for having me on. Good to talk to you all. All right. Talk to you soon. Very good. Hey, uh, Claire, tomorrow you and I are going to be at the American Institute of Architects downtown. We are. Very excited. And a big panel talking about architecture and schools and Mm -hmm. how architecture affects the impact. That's a free event, right? Just go to American Institute of Architecture, AIA Houston. Is that it? It is. And then you can join us for the conversation. It's going to be a good one. Free drinks, I think, too, right? I and it's, it's going to be a great one. <laughs> <laughs> so that should be good. Join Claire and I tomorrow downtown uh, at the Houston in- Institute of Architects. We'll American there. Institute of Architects. So that should be good. Hey, what a great program today. I that, know. That, no that cap. Good. No cap. Exactly. Slate. We, you slayed it. I'm just saying. So uh, listen, uh, there's so much to do in regards to children in our state, uh, in our country. Uh, and uh, Claire... And I and the entire team at Children at Risk, the Texas Family Leadership Council, there's so many people across the state working on behalf of children. Uh, We are glad that you're engaged with us and that you're listening to the program. We do this each and every day for for children. children. See you next time, guys. Howdy folks, this is Big Kev, your most excellent host of the Roots Rock Revolution. And you lucky folks, you're listening to KPFT, Houston, 90.1 FM, HD1. Check us out, you'll love it. If a natural disaster comes knocking, how prepared is your family? You can't just close the door on earthquakes, floods, or hurricanes and hope they go away. That's why it's important to make a plan now. Ready.gov slash plan has the tools and tips you need to prepare your family for an emergency. So if disaster shows up at your doorstep, 
you'll be ready. Visit ready.gov plan and make a plan today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Why was the basketball court all wet? Because the players kept dribbling on it. <laughs> the dad joke. Corny, groan-worthy, but also one of the simplest ways to share a moment with your kids. What did the buffalo say when he dropped his son off for school? Bye, son. <laughs> so take a moment to make your kid laugh, because dad jokes rule. Make your kid laugh today. Go to fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Son las 4 de la madrugada, lunes, y se encuentra literalmente absorbiendo mocos de bebé a través de un aspirador porque está congestionada. Hombre, eso es amor. Y si tanto la ama, ámela lo suficiente como para asegurarse de que está sentada en el asiento correcto del automóvil. Para asegurarse de que su hijo está en el asiento correcto acorde a su edad y tamaño. Visite nhtsa.gov diagonal protegidos. Demuéstreles que los ama. Manténgalos a salvo. Visite nhtsa.gov diagonal protegidos. Presentado por la National Highway Traffic Safety Administration y el Ad Council. 